Nicht, Elias, du das nicht. Elias, du das nicht. Elias, hörst du mir zu? Elias. 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 scares us and what saves us. This is the fear of God. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Fear of God podcast, my favorite podcast, your favorite podcast, every fogger in the world's favorite podcast. Speaking to you right now, uh, this day after Halloween for us recording, for me recording, I, I don't know where the us came from just there, um, for me recording, for you listening, who knows, but recording the day after Halloween is Nathan Rouse. Now, typically with me is fellow co-host Reed Lackey, um, but you know he was here a second ago, he said something about some Red Cross workers were at the door, like knocking on his door, like soliciting you know, donations of money and or, I suppose, blood. I, I don't know. I did not know that Red Cross workers did this as as a practice. But regardless, you know, it is California. It's a little crazy out there. Um, meanwhile, while he is away, permit me to entreat you, to implore you, um, to come awful close to begging you. Go leave a rating. Go leave a review. Subscribe to the Fear of God podcast. We would love that. It would make us feel good. It would probably make you feel good. It makes everybody feel good. So we are beginning today. We are re-engaging with a series began in September, uh, that of speaking in tongues. We are, we took a break in October for I Love the 70s, which was a lot of fun. We are now re-engaging speaking in tongues for a second phase. If you want to know the, the like hearty, rich, warm blanket version of what speaking in tongues is all about, go listen to our The Wailing episode from the beginning of September. You can catch up on kind of the, the 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 deeper, longer version of what speaking in tongues is all about. That said, uh, at its most basic, um, we are attempting through our little podcast to show solidarity with brothers and sisters throughout the world, recognizing that Jesus is on every road. And we are doing that by highlighting foreign language horror cinema. Specifically today, we will primarily be discussing uh, Goodnight Mommy, which is a film out of Austria. Additionally, as part of Speaking in Tongues, a portion of every merch perch you make 
at the Tea Public store, uh, search the Fear of God podcast, all one word, goes to the Florence Project, an organization doing really good work at our border, uh, the U.S.-Mexico border. Um, speaking of merch purchase, go make one. T-shirts, magnets, pillows, mugs. Reed, you're here. Hey, buddy. Wait a minute. Wait a what? Who? What? Who are you? I don't think you're. I don't think you're Nathan. Prove you're Nathan right now. Right now. Mm, permit me to soil myself. Oh my gosh. Poop. <laughs> okay, only one. Only one version of the world would uh, use Poop Club as their calling card <laughs> for. <laughs> Good job. Good job making that. Making that some continuity there. I was. I was leaving that. That poop club on the table. Well, so the, ew, I don't. <laughs> this, this is already going going very wrong. Sideways, going down the toilet, if you will. So, um, yeah, yeah. Um, so I have a really funny. Well, I, I thought it was funny. Tell um, me in our what? in our Halloween festivities at my work, uh, I had played a little game uh, with some of my coworkers, a uh, little trivia game uh, called "Who Am I," where it's basically just like fun, funny yep. little quip you know like what and my clue was your clue for them to guess you or a clue you had to guess someone else no the clue for uh them to guess me was well my ideal job would be at the red cross but they're gonna have to change that name do do you get it i mean my ideal place of work would be at the red cross but they have to change the name is it dracula yes exactly but i thought it was uh, you know what is the change of the name i don't know because of cross he doesn't like crosses yeah I wow, I feel like that was I feel like that was witty and clever, and no, just, I love it. You're just like you're just like eh, eh. Try, you know, try, try harder next time. What's What's funny, Riri, is you know we typically record on like like late on East Coast time, so I'm usually dragging a good bit. Ah, um, ah. but but now it's pretty early on West Coast. Did I say West Coast time a minute yeah. ago? Yeah, it's pretty early. Well, we record we record late East Coast typically. We are okay. recording now early West Coast, and so I have a cup of coffee in front of me. Um, I've been up a little while. I'm ready. I'm good. Okay. And you know, it's so good. you're it's saying good. that I'm only funny when you're not tired? Well, I wasn't saying anything about your funniness, really. Oh, I was okay. just making casual observation. I mean, oh, that's true. Funniness that's true. remains to be discovered. Um, okay, let's but. let's let's move. <laughs> so. Uh, so meanwhile, I just gotta know what you're watching. What you reading? What you listening to? You know, I forgot. I forgot our our better version of how you discovered who I was. Yeah, the first time we did this. People don't know we are. You know. We're struggling. We put on. We're struggling. That's what it is. We put on a good face. For the podcasts, people, oh, for the man. foggers of the world, but we're having a tough time. So, yes. you know, I, I screwed up a recording two weeks ago, quite inadvertently, quite, quite inadvertently. But thank you to, yes, uh, a great opportunity. Yes. Uh, great opportunity. Let it not go unsaid. We are talking about what you're watching, reading, listening to, but y'all got to listen to Bill Oberst Jr., guest on our podcast which is amazing so yes thank you thank you so much reed for making that happen thank you so much bill for uh taking the time to share your story with us and absolutely bill regardless that was because of a quite inadvertent screw up on my part um it did work out 
rather well, and so that's nice. Um, and then just the other night, <laughs> oh my gosh, sat <laughs> we down began to do this like, again. Yeah. yeah, we sat down to do like this intentional like catch up recording, and then about twenty minutes into the uh, the episode that we are now trying to take two, uh, my power goes out because we've had so many fires in the area. Uh, our local power plants have been basically intentionally shutting down certain grids of power that are in high wind areas as a effort to reduce the opportunities for fires to break out from their from their power lines and from their power grids and uh so yeah just uh you know t- 20 30 minutes into the conversation just all of a sudden all <laughs> everything goes dark yeah, it's good it's good stuff too i know i know oh well but uh just have to- Slog through this and see yeah. if we can muster, muster something worthwhile. <laughs> sure, sure. So Regardless, you... you asked me what I'm watching, reading, listening yeah. to. I am going to tell you, however briefly it may be, read, read, read. Yeah, nay, our, boy, the... our, our, our boy is back. He I is know. Like the, he's like the unspoken third host of our show. <laughs> I mean, that'd be, that'd be pretty amazing. Oh, um, gosh. He's a busy but, man. I would uh, love that, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh our, our our brother from another creative mother, uh, Mr. Damon Lindelof. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he of lost fame, which is itself start to finish with only a few minor blips, contrary to popular belief or opinion or anyone's opinion, uh, is amazing. Wow. But mm-hmm. uh, it's our show. We can say that. <laughs> um, so, you know, co-creator and, and showrunner of Lost uh, went on to also develop Tom Parada's book, The Leftovers, into a wrenching but emotionally amazing three season series on HBO. Um, So uh, also has just now uh, launched for, again, for HBO Watchmen. You know, we initially actually talked about this when it was announced, or at least his version, his sort of mission statement of doing this as a remix was announced. Uh, Watchmen, of course, adapted from the Alan Moore, Dave Gibbons work from the 80s. And... Uh, you know, for me personally, I don't know about you, but I am a, I am an appreciator of Watchmen. Um, I, I don't dislike it. I don't love it. Um, I like it and respect its sort of place in the kind of larger publishing, comic publishing canon. Um, but yeah. you know, not avid about it. Um, I'm kind so, of right with you. Yeah. Yeah. So I was a little unsure. And then, um, when his sort of mission statement, this remix notion came out, I was like, okay, that sounds Sounds intriguing. Um, I will say, as of this recording, there's only two episodes out, and uh, I, I, I love it. It's, That's awesome. It's it's amazing. I mean, the first episode, within minutes, so this is not a spoiler, within minutes, you are sort of, you know, sledgehammered with mm. the the sort of potent Sounds fun. Sto- storytelling. Yeah. <laughs> 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 it's like a watermelon at a Gallagher show. Oh, um, oh my God. I, I, was not, I was not ready for this. <laughs> Just right, right, right. Well, yeah, that feeling might happen because <laughs> uh, in a way that the Watchmen book does not do, but, you know, sort of like the film Joker, and maybe someday we'll return and talk about Joker, but sort of like yeah. the film Joker, things like it in this current era are kind of Trojan horsing deeper conversations under the banner of an IP. You know oh, I mean? you're right, um, right. Watchmen, the show, uh, within seconds you learn this, so again, not a spoiler, is a very direct, almost assaultive conversation about race in America. And it's, oh, wow. um, it's startling and mm. amazing and impressive and 
you know, surprising, and I'm really anxious and excited to see where the series goes. Regardless, awesome. I am watching. I am. They they ask in the series who watches the Watchmen. I read. I am <laughs> watching the Watchmen. That is amazing. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah, I have not, as of this recording, checked anything out for it, but it is on my radar, and I hope to get to it very, very soon. Well, make haste, brother. I I plan to. I plan to. Um. So I have been. I want to make one little comment here. Um. I have been, as listeners were, uh, sort of given the opportunity to see or to hear about on our special Halloween bonus. If you haven't checked it out, go check it out. I've been making my way this Halloween season through the classic Universal Monster films with my son, and uh, he was very excited to come onto the show for a brief little bonus chat. Um, he, was, he gives his little mini-reviews of each of the of the films and ranks them, and, and it's lots and lots of fun. So go check that out. So that was uh, that's basically what, uh, what I've been watching as well. Listeners were entreated to 20 minutes of that if they <laughs> subscribe to the feed, so I won't go into that here, but go check that out. My, my son is uh, adorable, and uh, I, love, uh, I love chatting with him about those kind of things and loved watching. That was movies. a lot of fun. You, you'll appreciate this. So one, it's very cool that you were able to have that experience with him walking through those films. Yeah, um, great. Where I'm going with this is a little similar. I have not begun this yet, but planted the seed for it. So followers of us on Insta, and it may have shown up on the Facebook page. I can't remember, but um, we'll know. And I referenced this a, a couple weeks ago that we did go to Disney and did spend mm, mm. Uh, a lot of time, a lot of calories walking and far too much money on a week vacation there for my 40th birthday. Well, Part of it, uh, come to find out, my middle child, who's nine, is our resident kind of daredevil. She loves the thrill rides and oh. stuff. Specifically, you know, loved the Tower of Terror. And, oh, and I kind of planted right. the seed. I was like, you know what? She she may actually be into um, something like the original Twilight Zone. And that would be a Ooh. fun kind of yeah. pretty mild access point. Um, sure. You know, in terms, of, in terms of intensity and stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely. So we have not begun that, but the seed is there and she has asked about it. Oh, if you do, boy, let me know how that goes because that sounds really, really great. And I can tell you from experience, like once they, once they get into something like that, it's it's a it's a pretty incredible like bonding opportunity. There are multitudes of others, but like, sure. uh, like I sometimes cannot pull my son away from his video game, but I would get home, and then as soon as I would get home, and I'd be like, hey want to watch Bride of Frankenstein man he would run turn it off and sit right down like it was a uh, priority viewing for him so it was uh yeah it was really it was awesome. really really cool so i would encourage that for anybody like find something like that link it up with your with your find onboard child <laughs> yeah find a child somewhere preferably your own um <laughs> but uh <laughs> <laughs> That's this is getting weird real fast. So uh so that has been another installment of What You Watching What You Reading What You Listening to Listening to Yes. So Read. Yeah. So you know what? Yes. We're gonna we're gonna do it. You know do what it. we're gonna do? What are we gonna do? <laughs> well read today. Me, you, foggers of the world, denizens of Wyndham, across time, will journey once more into the cozy but stylish forested woods and caves and police stations and various other locales of Wyndham, Germany, as we discuss, begin the discussion in this TV guideposts of Dark, Season 2. 
Today, looking at episodes one and two. Here we go. I, I, I love it. I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't tell if they were for dramatic pauses or if they were just trying to find the words. Like, yes, it, it was trying know, to find the words. It, I mean, no, dramatic pauses. It could, uh, yeah, no, no, they were totally dramatic. They were meant to be uh, in, in inflections for emphasis. Um, so, yes, Dark Season 2. Uh, do you mind if I, I kind of kick things off? I would love if you kick things off. Um, so I feel like you've just been kind of here. Like, kick things off, Reed. Like, get, yeah, join the conversation. You know what? I, it's early for me, and and, uh, and 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 it's far too early for your shenanigans. So, um, I, as as listeners will remember, I so I loved the experience of watching Dark season one, and you know the the overall show is uh, is very hard hitting and uh, is compelling and fascinating, but. As you and I both, you from a first viewing experience, me for having just watched it the first, you know, the one time, uh, was a bit ambivalent about the way season one ended. And so I was very curious to see like how things kicked off in season two. Um, I will say that for these first two episodes, it does feel a bit the way the initial parts of season one felt in that there's just feels like there's a lot of stage setting. There's a little bit, a couple of new characters popping in that, of course, you know, may have some uh, tremendous impact or some complicated histories. We have gone now to a brand new time frame in the opening scene of the first episode because, you know, we, we didn't have enough of them. So let's just go ahead and, <laughs> and add on another era that we that we have to navigate. But uh, so my initial sort of dive into this is not... Uh, rabidly affectionate at the moment, but that's not to say that it's bad. It's still compelling. It's still the the caliber of the craft of writing and production values are still very high. Um, it's just in these first two episodes, it's very clear, or it appears to me, that they're just sort of setting the stage for threads that they're going to connect towards the latter part of the season or perhaps even midway through the season. Uh, you have me somewhat at a disadvantage in that you have seen season two, so you know, you will know as we go through these conversations uh, whether or not I'm on the right track with certain theories or plot threads or whatever. So, um, But yeah, just in these first two episodes, I'm kind of like, no, I, I like it, I'm enjoying it, but nothing's, nothing's really wowing me at the moment. I'm just trying to maintain traction with each of the different characters where they are when they are and what they're doing because boy yeah now we're getting into like our current you know 2020 people are like now learning about time travel and bouncing into places and i'm like where are you now and what are you doing how did you get there what what happened (laughs) so uh yeah well and it's uh, not just it's it's funny because it's not just the the nature of the time travel inherent to the show, but it's also now within the given time travel moments. In other words, within what was our 2019 story in season one, time has progressed six months, you know? So it's even yes. more, it's even yes. more kind of like, Oh my gosh. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I need a chart to know because on top of that, um, every timeline drops in, more or less once you're introduced to it, and this happen, this recurs throughout the season, um, the note X amount of days, you know, specific, like six, five, four, three, two, one, uh, to right. to the apocalypse. So it's so you aren't just keeping track of where in time we are. Uh, you aren't just keeping track of when in a given era you are based on your relationship to season one. 
you're, right. you're also right. keeping track of, okay, at the same time, there's a thing forthcoming that mm-hmm. I'm, I'm need to be aware of as a viewer. And clearly some of the characters have some knowledge of, um, right. I will say this. I, I won't spoil overall feelings about the season. I have finished it. I did begin it, uh, at about 1 AM the night we finished our, <laughs> our recording uh, sure, of season sure. one, you know, our, our conversation about season one, I jumped right back into it. And I did not finish a whole episode that night, but I did start it just to get a feel <laughs> for it. I just got to, I got to be in Winden for a few minutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then, I just uh, got to yeah, know. Um, <laughs> I will say this uh, as a as a tonal spoiler, uh, episode six of season two might be my favorite full episode of the series. It's it's really, really, really strong. Okay. Um, okay. General notes on episodes one and two. We do get two primary new main characters, that of Clausen, the investigator, um, and mm-hmm. uh, Adam, the sort of sort of mysterious figure in 1921. Um, yeah, I will ad- yeah. I will admit a little bit of um, disheartenment when we first meet Adam, just because I think something I love so much about season one is it's is how conventional genre storytelling is in the background. Whereas, okay, yeah, mm-hmm. kind of character interactions are in the foreground, and I feel a little bit like when you introduce a character like an Adam, who's clearly meant to be propped up as this kind of big bad of the season, you are right, right, you are with great intention foregrounding those genre conventions. You know what I mean? Um, oh, absolutely, yeah. And I'll I'll express a bit of a sort of echo when when adam was introduced which he's he's discussed in the very first scene yeah. of uh, of the well not the very first scene but like you know in the first sequence of uh, the first episode of season 2 and so um when i believe we meet adam for the first time in episode 2 am i correct about that i'm trying to yes i believe it's not an episode correct. he is, you're you're yeah. right he's referenced well in, no see, I think we do meet him I think we he, do meet him in one um, oh, do we? Because okay, he's talking right. to adult Noah in 1921. That's okay. So that's the scene I'm remembering, but I couldn't remember if that was in episode one or episode two. But uh, I will say I had a um, another sort of like moment where I was sitting there. I was like, Adam's somebody we know already. Like I didn't I didn't have a theory on who because I was like, this is too early in the season. This is too new of a character. I don't know a scope for theorizing like who they might be or whatever. But I was immediately sort of uh, postulating that like I, I think Adam's probably going to be somebody that we know. And then um, I, I, I have progressed a little bit further than we're talking about in this conversation. So I won't say what the show gives me. But I remember feeling even just in that initial meeting of Adam where I'm like, okay, Adam's somebody that we already know. I remember feeling like, oh my gosh, how long can this show? And this is not this is not a ding against the show. This is a legitimate question because if they manage to pull it off, I will simply stand up and applaud rather than cite it as a frustration. But I was like, how long can they pull off this whole characters in different contexts that you find out are the same people? Like the scene in episode one where old Noah is sitting on the pew next to yeah, young Noah that's makes my wild. head hurt. I know. <laughs> Well, you know, something something that gets discussed in episode three or four, I can't remember, that isn't a plot spoiler, so I'm going to bring it up here, and I wish we had sort of known to bring it up in season one because it plays a role in there. Oh, okay. And this was only illuminated to me after 
our conversation and I started diving into some season one interviews and whatnot is this thing presents itself verbally in season two. I can't, I don't think it does verbally in season one, but it's called the bootstrap paradox. Um, and it's really fascinating because I didn't catch it the first time I watched season two. That's what it was. I finished season two and then started consuming interviews and audio stuff about the series. Um, and that's when this concept of the bootstrap paradox really registered. And the, the bootstrap paradox is an actual kind of, you know, metaphysical theory about, about, I suppose, directly time travel, but specifically the notion that, the bootstrap paradox sort of posits the notion that ultimately a thing can have no beginning or end. Uh, what there is, right. there is no source point for a particular object based on this sort of rule of time travel. Specifically, you can look at, I'm sorry to cut you off, but you can look at no, no, you know. the book journey through time from season one that does re- reappear here as a, a real direct illustration of the bootstrap paradox, which is to say Tan house Young Tanhouse is handed the book that old Tanhouse wrote that then right. young Tanhouse knows how to write that then gets right. ultimately travel through chronologically, then sent back. And thus, there is no origin point anymore for the book. And exactly what's exactly. really fascinating about what the show does is starts to tighten that knot, you know, on mm, mm. and effectively the show itself is presenting almost all of the events and at a certain point characters as bootstrap paradoxes in and of themselves. And it's really, it, that'll be an interesting conversation to have once we kind of wrap up the series or wrap up season two. And, sure. Uh, but it is something worth bringing up because I imagine it will play into some of our uh, mythology conversations as we move sure, forward. Sure. Sure. Um, uh, yeah. One, one more note about the, and I believe I did at one point in our discussions about season one, bring up the film predestination starring yeah, yeah, Hawk yeah. Uh-huh. from a few years ago. Mm-hmm. So uh, without specifically spoiling how, why, or details, uh, the film predestination specifically dances with this. I don't even think they call it that in the film, but it dances with this bootstrap, paradox phenomenon yeah. where it's like an or an origin less thing because and the the time travel device the the sort of clockwork thing uh-huh. is another uh device within dark yes. that it's like yes. that it's like well it's presented from the future to a character from the past who then builds it and knows how to build it and knows how it works because it's presented to them from the future. So where did it originate? And it essentially well, interest- has no origin. Interestingly, point. no, and that's an actually an excellent example of this idea. Interestingly, I, I won't credit myself this. It was from reading uh, about uh, onset stuff for season two um, because the the physical item of the time machine you're referring to makes multiple appearances in season two across characters Mm. and the showrunners because they kept getting questions from cast who are trying to piece their brains together themselves as they're doing these scenes, (laughs) the show, the showrunners had to continually reiterate. There is only one. There is, Mm. there's only Mm. one physical time machine, but it, because of the nature of this bootstrap paradox and the time travel in the show, it, has appearances across multiple era. It's really wild. I, I can't even ex- yeah. <laughs> explain it well, but, but they just had to keep emphasizing. There is only one device. It's That's just, wow. just you as a viewer are seeing it in multiple places, which just kind of makes right. your head spin. Right. Uh, a few quick notes before we part from these one, 
uh, we will return to this, but I'm stating right now that though I was right about intentionality around young Elizabeth's not being taken on the road in season one, I was wrong about oh. the who and precisely ah, about mm. the why, though I was approximating the why. Um, gotcha. So that'll be fun to come back to. Uh, Reed, Patchy, Patchy's here. And not only is Patchy <laughs> here, he has uh, 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 Ken that we didn't know previously. And, did, yeah. and he's got a brand new patch. Papa's got a brand new patch. What are you going to do? Papa, <laughs> he's got, that's some snazzy glasses right there. It's like, no, no, no. I'm like, this is my rock star look. Like, Papa's got a brand new patch. Um, Did you ever? Are you familiar at all? This is super random with the Wolverine character's um, persona of Patch. Mm, No. So in the '80s, Chris Claremont, who's credited with much of uh, the X Men's sort of claim to fame in terms of their notoriety in the '80s and early '90s, um, in writing the character Wolverine, I don't even know why this happened, but Wolverine had to kind of disappear for a season of publishing time and of his own life or whatever. And he, he exiled himself to the country of Madripoor. Madripoor is this Asian nation just brimming with crime. It's like, it's like the most icely cantina, but as a country anyway, while there Wolverine walked around with a patch and was named himself. I'm not making this up patch. And people didn't know it was Wolverine. <laughs> How could, hairstyle the same. Right, right, right. He's Still, short. He's short. He's got yeah. claws and his hair looks like him, but that is not Wolverine. Look at that patch. Like, like come on. Look Wolverine doesn't wear a patch. Who do you think you are? Right. Like, Wolverine no, that's, can that's see. Not, he's got a healing factor. He doesn't need on. no patch. Now, that, Plus, might, he, he, that might be Nick Fury. He, right. But, I mean, he clearly told us his name is Patch. Right. So... so <laughs> Conversation over. Okay, his, this is not. Turns out his real over. mutant power is misdirection. <laughs> it's like when it's like when uh, somebody would inter- when when the vampire would introduce himself. My name is Doctor Acula. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> or isn't so, there? Aren't there some? Um, I know this happens in the Castlevania video game series, but is there not? Is does it take place in any of the film mythology that he's referred to as Alucard? I'm like, come yes, on, yeah, come on, yeah, 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 yeah. Like, yeah. come on, come on, just back it up a little bit. Um, one la- I've got one last note on Dark, and then I want you to finish, and then sure, you can take then, us out, or I can take us out, whatever. Um, yeah, yeah, no problem. One thing I don't like that again doesn't feel like it stands out as much in season one, though. Maybe I was just kind of beguiled by the overall kind of mystique of season one mm-hmm. uh, i really didn't like it maybe the first episode or maybe the second one when charlotte the and correct me if i'm wrong but the notion of charlotte's parentage being important whatsoever feels like it doesn't happen at all in season one uh, then, no i agree with you i don't i and, didn't remember that at all yeah and then all of a sudden she's all worked up about who her parents are in mm-hmm. a way that i was like come on y'all you're so good at subtlety here this is not subtle whatsoever. Guess what, viewers? We're going to be discussing Charlotte's parentage this season. Bet you didn't <laughs> see daddy. that coming. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, no, I, I completely agree. I have uh, two sort of notes, and then, yeah, I'll, we'll close the segment. But um, So my one big note is, is of these first two episodes, it is uh, my only major love, and uh, but it's a production note. 
the visual imagery of what I guess we could deem this God particle that they're talking about. It is the 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 dark matter substance thing that I, I presume makes this time travel possible. The visual imagery of that is stunning. Like the yeah, shot that when a character is in the same room with that thing as it is uh, swirling and chaotic, it is. I mean, it is profoundly effective. So it, it's not on the screen for very long, but those scenes where it is, you know, in, in tons of conversation about good CGI, bad CGI, whatever, this is spectacular. I mean, it lo- it, I mean, it is clearly a, uh, you know, an animated thing, but it looks amazing when oh, characters no. are looking at it. So. That's a real God particle. I, you know, I wondered. I was like, you know what? Can you, go to, can you get those from Amazon? I mean, like, you can just like, oh no, I need a God particle for the thing. It's like nine ninety nine. You know, same day shipping. Nine million nine hundred ninety nine thousand dollars. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Um, so the other note that I have that I I did appreciate this part of it, though similar to the Noah and Noah scene, made my head hurt a little bit. So Jonas, I can't remember if it's in episode one or episode two. I think might be in episode one. Jonas, older Jonas, who we last season referred to as Trenchcoat Man, um, older Jonas straight up shows up at his doorstep and, and, and like introduces himself to his mother, Hannah. And so they, they have this extended conversation where he convinces her that he shows her what happened with Mikkel and that, like, hey, uh, Mikkel is... The, the one that grew up and became your husband right. and my father and everything, like, takes her back in time and shows her that. Um, so what I re- really got excited about and am very curious to see where they go with it is as characters began to sort of talk about the thing that is at the substance of it. Like, I, I something that frustrates me in some of these mystery shows is when, like, some characters know it, but then they just talk in riddles to other characters. They're yeah, just like, yeah. oh, you yeah. know, you can't understand. So I really appreciated that so early in this season, they just go ahead and like, no, we're going to put Hannah and Katarina and the Dopplers and older Jonas, we're going to put them all in a room and have them staring at the... <laughs> we're not there at, yet, but yeah, yeah. yeah. A, uh, but, oh, is that is that for later? Yeah, that's three and four. Dang it. Oh, it's crap. A, it's okay. Uh, so, well, yes. So, uh, the, this is the difficulties of uh, sure. watching for pre prep and then blah, blah, blah. So, but anyway, so yeah, a tease for later. All of those characters begin to get into a room and begin to actively discuss this time travel paradox phenomena. And, uh, and so I really appreciated that they start to bring that in. So, in episode, That's before so- we. I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, uh, no, no, no. Before we close it down, so how much of that has, can you remember how much of that has progressed by episode two? At least some of it. Has Only happened. at the end of episode two does uh, Elder Jonas uh, take uh, Hannah back and show oh, her. Oh, okay. Mikkel. Okay. All right. The, all right, the sitting in a bunker, everyone sitting in a bunker stuff is three and four, or maybe just okay. four. I can't remember. Got but it. Got it's it. funny you say that because, and we'll dive into that more specifically next week, but one thing I struggle with this season is it's it's almost like this inversion happens from season one in terms of the plotting where, oh my gosh, now everybody knows everything and it mm, literally mm. is now a show just about everybody talking about time travel. And that uh, becomes that becomes yeah. kind of hard to make. It is an, ex, an exposition-heavy season. Um, mm, gotcha. But yeah. that said at least part of what you're identifying is an aspect that I do love about the series is when real life characters interact with the super real or the supernatural things they're encountering and 
Hannah's response to being shown Mikkel in 86 is really powerful and mm, yeah, right, really effective right. because what that scene does is one, it does show the thing I do love about the series is showing the human response to these things. It's a very, it's a very humanized um, sort of reaction to this, you know, kind of insane revelation, but mm, mm-hmm. you know, also having to, to grapple with that. It's funny though, because you referenced this and this is in one and two, we'll talk about this as we go, but some character motivations I struggle with, like elder Jonas showing up, and just being like, "What's up, mom? It's me. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna Airbnb for a little bit. Uh, <laughs> you know, oh, guess, guess what? Here's all this grandiose, super metaphysical mythology. I'm gonna cram down your skull all in a scene or two. Yeah, yeah, it's just, yeah. it's kind of like, wow, goodness gracious. Like, <laughs> <laughs> right. I, it's funny because you reference on you know, previous sort of sci-fi genre stuff where people speak in riddles around. It's like, well, now I'm kind of torn. Do I want riddles or do I want the truth? I don't yeah. know. You know, yeah. somewhere in the middle. But regardless, I, I, this, you know. This is this is like a watchman sledgehammer to the face, and I don't know. Yeah. yeah <laughs> I don't yeah. know exactly what to do. And not he's not the only one doing it because, like, this is happening a lot. You get older Noah in a scene with younger Noah. You also have, you know, older Jonas talking with Hannah. And then you have... Older Claudia going back and talking to younger Claudia and like sitting in the same scene, like sort of setting the stage for all of these different things. Um, gosh, I keep thinking of like, I know we yeah. need to move on, but uh, we we see uh, older Ulrich in, in oh, this one. I actually right? love that. I actually love yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. It's like he's and he's just sort of been chilling out in the, giving, the giving some props to um, to international correspondent Vera Gowdy foreign correspondent Vera Gowdy, she made a reference when she featured in our dark conversation in September about the casting. I mean, oh my you, gosh. you know that's not the same actor, but doggone if they don't resemble. They, I mean, they really amazing. look. Yeah, it's, it's alarming. It would not surprise me. I didn't look this up. It would not surprise me to find out that in the real they were somehow related. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, the casting is impeccable. They I'm really glad, do a great job. I'm glad you brought that up because I actually loved that because... And and a, a, a critic of my responses could say like, well, nothing makes you happy, Nathan. Like maybe, but mm-hmm. uh, I do know Reese's pumpkins make me happy, and I've had far too many of those in the last twenty four hours. But um, <laughs> <laughs> um, Egon, eighty six Egon, going mm-hmm. to now eighty six Ulrich is a yeah. really amazing scene to me. Like I it's, love it's powerful yeah. when and and. This is what I mean by someone could say I'm never happy with what they give us. Like, I don't want a bunch of characters talking about all the conventions. I want to see how the conventions affect the characters. And that's yeah, a really powerful yeah. illustration of that. No, that's um, a, I think that's an astute observation. I, I agree. And I think that's where that scene gets a lot of its power is yeah. you you know it. You're just like, and, and I, I, I had said in one of our episodes in season one, I was like, you know, presumably Ulrich will never make it back from the fifties into, you know, back into his proper time. Uh, and so, yeah, here we are in the eighties. Well, and it makes having aged, yeah. you know? and it makes perfect sense because what is fun about the show is it does beg those questions. A la Miko Michael. Okay. Well, if this happens then how do more people not know about what's going on? Well, because they thought Ulrich was crazy and, and, you know, put him in a psych ward. Like yeah, oh, that, that yeah. makes perfect sense. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, it's so great. So, yeah, I am uh, – so while – you know, even in these 30 minutes we've been chatting about the show, I, my uh, 
uh, eagerness and, and appreciation for it is building. So th- there's definitely, even though these first two episodes are stage setting, um, there's definitely some very interesting stuff going on. I'm excited and curious to see where uh, season two goes from here. But um, that has been... <clears throat> Another walkthrough, a new walkthrough of Dark Season 2. Episodes 1 and 2, a longer-than-anticipated, intended, and perhaps desired for our time constraints walk through episodes 1 and 2 of Season 2 of Dark. Join us next week as we return to the psych ward, to the Airbnb that is the uh, Conwald residence circa 1986, uh, to various other German locales as we engage Dark Season 2, Episodes 3 and 4 on Netflix. Reed, we're back. We <laughs> are back. back. Okay, so um, do it. Listener, listeners don't know that we have a, uh, you know, that, that we do have kind of a, a, a hard stopping point that we have to sort of meet. So I don't want to shortchange this conversation, but we're back into Speaking in Tongues, Volume 2. Um, and we are kicking things down with a film that I find tremendously powerful. I'm very curious to hear some of your specific thoughts about it. It is a film called Goodnight Mommy. The proper title is uh, Ixe Ixe, which translates in Austrian to I See, I See. Um, and it is a, um, it's a film by a, a directorial team. I am going to apologize beforehand about these names because I'm, I'm, I'm doing the best I can, y'all. Um, but... Uh, I believe it's pronounced uh, Severin Fiala and Veronica Franz are the directing and writing sort of pair uh, for this film. Uh, This film was released back in 2014, I think uh, ran a number of festivals and has, you know, hit the radars. It's as Nathan had mentioned earlier, it's an Austrian film. I believe it was submitted as a candidate for uh, an Academy Award nomination, but did not actually receive uh, a nomination, but has has gained a tremendous amount of conversational acclaim. I see it literally I, when I was scouring, like, hey, what should we be talking about and what what's in the conversation out on the Internet and everything. Goodnight Mommy is one of the three or four films that showed up on, I think, every single one of the best foreign language horror films. Uh, and, and you know, they're, they would bounce in and out of different ranking places, but Goodnight Mommy was on, I believe, every single list I looked at. It's very talked about. It's very highly it's acclaimed. And it is very effective. Um, it's a complicated film. It's a somewhat complicated narrative, somewhat complicated theme. Um, I know you had probably heard about it before, but you had not seen it. This was a first viewing for you, right? Oh, definitely. Yeah, I I knew. And I mean, it's arguable if I'd even heard of it. I mean, maybe just in the ether, but but not sure. Recollection. And did you as as you're prone to do? Did you do go in with no prep? You just sort of started the the, I saw the cover art and knew something about two boys and a mom. That's about it. Okay, yeah, it's a very. So the premise in brief is So when you first see that mommy I was like damn <laughs> <laughs> right. So the pr- I was yeah. like good night mommy <laughs> <laughs> That's get her off screen quick That's, that's your that's your pr- good night mommy <laughs> This is this is this episode's oh man. Like, <laughs> good night. 
so, um, so yeah, so the premise in brief is that um, there's lots of information that the film does not hand to you very deliberately. But when we meet these characters, uh, there are twin boys uh, living in a somewhat uh, a, a nice, uh, somewhat remote house that um, it's just these twin boys and their mother. And the first time you see their mother, she is heavily bandaged about the face in a way that is, uh, I'm sure by design, very alarming. Um, she has had some. <laughs> yeah. She's had some facial reconstructive surgery, and so she is bandaged um, almost completely about the face, where you just basically just see her her eyes, the tip of her nose, and her, and her mouth, and um, and so and it is. It's a it's a very sort of jarring image the first time you see it because the first connection you have is just with these two boys. Well, what happens is through the course of the film, uh, the the two boys begin to question amongst themselves and of some of the behavioral choices that their mother is making is they begin to question is this really our mother or is this some sort of uh, doppelganger that has assumed our mother's place um, and that is you know for a good chunk of the film that is the mystery you know sort of at the base is is this really our mother the film, I, I, I'm going to spoil it in the conversation. I'm not going to spoil it at this moment. But um, the film takes a rather hard right turn in the last half hour of the film that is part of why I love it and part of why I think it is so effective, although it does complicate what the film is sort of after uh, tremendously uh, for me. But I, but I love it, so maybe this conversation will help me sort of wrap my head around it. But that's the loose premise of the film is that the... Um, the boys are wondering, is this really uh, their mother? So as, a, as an entry point to this, let's, uh, let, uh, again, listeners are unaware of our time constraints, but we're aware of them. So why don't we just have a generalized conversation about likes, dislikes, and, and fear? The only real trivia that I have is the singular note that the, the twin boys, um, this was their first you know, thing that they had done. They auditioned, I think, hundreds of twins and, uh, in the audition process, there was a, a moment where the the mom would be there and the director gave, in the audition, the director gave the uh, respective twins sort of direction to say like, all right, you, you're intimidated by this person, but you want to know what they've done with your mother. And he wanted to see how the different twins would react. Most of the twins would like scream at the mother character, be like, what have you done with my mommy? You know, like, they get real aggressive. But the reason these two got the job is because they stayed very, very calm and very uh, sort of deliberate with their choices, and it, it they're, they're the director great. out. Oh, they're wonderful. They're wonderful. So let's, uh, in, that's really the main sort of trivial bit that I had. It, let's sort of blend our likes, sure. dislikes, and fear conversation together. What uh, what sort of notes do you have? Yeah, I mean, the, the kids are great. You know, this is one of those fun ones where knowing nothing kind of aided the experience mm. because it's funny where the movie goes. Do you want to just tell where the movie goes? Yeah, I, I was I, mean, I was feeling well. I was feeling an impulse. Yeah, I was feeling an impulse to kind of hold it back. But uh, why don't you go ahead and say what what that so, hard right turn was that I was talking about? Well, so the hard right turn that isn't literally out of nowhere. I mean, it's 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 embedded. You just it's don't built. Know. Yeah, you don't you yeah. don't know you don't know to look for it, but. The hard right turn is that this mother is actually totally legit and uh, did have some facial reconstruction due to a, I think it was a car accident that they were all yes. in, in which mm -hmm. 
she and the husband separate, but they lose one of the boys. And so what you've been seeing the whole time as twins is really one of, is the surviving twin Elias, I think, who has, who had lost his brother, his twin brother, Lucas in this accident. And so Mm -hmm. Lucas in the film that you're viewing is just his kind of imaginary sort of construct. And so by the end of it, what you think are two boys being oppressed by a possible imposter, they end up, and you know, on purpose ish, kind of because of just psychological trauma, torturing the mother to death. Oh my uh, gosh, which is terrible. And oh, it's awful. So, so that matters. The the, the punchline there matters for my initial <laughs> take on the film, which was these two boys. Look at this. It reminds me of growing up with my brother, and they're belching together, <laughs> and they're punching each other. And <laughs> I was like, they're so sweet. <laughs> oh my gosh! And then all of a sudden, it's like, good night, uh, Tommy. Oh. <laughs> Oh my god! Yeah, it's like because when That's they start, great. like at first, when they tie her to the bed, and you are still in this mode of like, yeah, I don't know, I don't know if this is because the film has layered in some things, presumably from their perspective, about why this mother may be an imposter, and so the, when they first tie her to the bed, you're like, where's this going to go? Like, what are they? Are they about to? You know, is this the hero's moment where they're going to, you know, like uh, fix everything or sort of get the upper hand. But then as you begin to realize, oh, crap, no, this is really their mother. And there's a there's a a psychological schism going on in in because they don't reveal until I think almost the final scene of the film that one of the twins is is a specter like they don't they don't reveal that until very late in the game. As you said, it's embedded in the narrative because early on in the film, like she's only putting out a breakfast bowl for one of the children. She's only, you know, accepting the offered gift of rocks from one of the children. And uh, Elias keeps looking over at Lucas like, you're going to have to apologize. Like, you're going to have to make this right. And because they, you don't know at that point, because the film hasn't told you yet, that there's a psychological break going on in the mind of the surviving twin. And so, again, it all makes sense once it's revealed oh, they're, you know, one of the twins did not survive the accident, and that's part of what's what's going on right now. But when they first tie her to the bed, you're kind of like, okay, I don't know. And then right. as things begin to progress, like, it gets it gets awful. Like, the, well, you... Well, I think, I think one of the most heartbreaking script moments of the whole piece is, who ultimately is Elias, because uh, he's the only real figure there, but he says to her, prove to us you're our mom and, yeah and, or, oh. or no 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 he says please prove to us you're our mom that's awful yeah um, like because he's aware of just what they're kind of putting her through but is so kind of psychologically tortured himself now let me ask you this so was this your second viewing this was my second viewing yeah i'd seen it once so a uh, little fear of god behind the curtain the first time i saw this film listeners don't know this but way back in the day we recorded on our John Carpenter series for episodes uh, 7, 8, 9, and 10. We recorded those all on the same day. I had the day off work, and my family was out of town, so it was just sort of a, a you know a relaxed day for me. And in between recording sessions, I was checking out various films that had been on my radar. On that day, I saw Goodnight Mommy for the first time. It was in between our recording sessions of that big John Carpenter marathon. I uh, had seen it for the first time. But, yeah, so this was my second viewing. Well, because 
then what did you initially make or did it even register for you? Because you alluded a minute ago to things like just the one plate of food out, these clear notes that if you don't know are there, you won't know are there. Um, right, right. But, t- I mean, it registered immediately to me when I, I didn't know what it was registering, but just the discordant nature of um, or the dissonant nature of uh, when Elias is on the boat at the very beginning calling for Lucas. Um, mm, just mm, this, mm-hmm. if only because more or less, once you see them together, they're never not together. And so it registered for me that you did see this scene where these two boys are not together, which just registered as, okay. So I guess that's a long-winded way of saying, I do have a question around a particular scene, but ultimately it revealing itself that one was not really there. I'll I'll position it this way. I was ready to love the film. I do okay. love mm-hmm. the production design, just the okay. this mm-hmm. real Spartan aesthetic house. Um, you know, just oh, the, looks the great. general film craft is super strong. There's a great score. The performances are fantastic. It's it's creepy as hell. Um, oh, it's so creepy. And to be fair to the criticism I'm about to make, I, I don't know that an alternate interpretation would have been reasonable or convincing or realistic in a way that made sense. But once it was revealed, it was like, Oh, okay. Well, that's a pretty direct and the only real answer here. Um, that that's couched in a sort of reality. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, uh, which, which was the only answer that, 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 uh, that one of the boys is not really there and that, oh, died gotcha. in a thing okay. yes. and that this yes. information okay. has just been obscured from your kind of comprehension. Yeah. So, Partly because I and and a scene I struggle with and help me couch this somewhere is okay. her weird walk in the woods where she strips down and has this Doctor Strange moment out in the woods where she's seeing all the alternate futures. I'm making a jokey Infinity War reference, <laughs> right. there, but no, of course, has sure. this real weird visual effect happen to her head. Like that moment, I was like, okay, whoa, something is jacked up with mommy. And, right, right, and she's the, she's the bad guy. So then, when it's revealed to be not that at all, and and more or less, we're meant to believe she is who she says she is. I don't know what to do with that weird scene. So I may be wrong, and I had not I've not researched any sort of particular commentary on that scene, but um, but you know what I'm talking about. Oh, I know exactly what you're talking about. I view that scene again. I could be wrong. I view that scene as an extension of I view that that scene did not happen that uh the the whole like wandering out in the woods and everything that that did not actively occur that instead that is an extension of the boys sort of paranoia about what is off with their mother now that's that's a very broad brush to sort of dismiss the scene and and perhaps too reductive of me to do so but at least from where I'm at right now, I position that scene as an extension of their distrust and paranoia, not as an actual occurrence of the of the mother trying to, uh, you know, accomplish something. Because it could right. be viewed one. It's it's either it really happened, it is an extension of the mother's psyche, or it is an extension of the boy's psyche. At the moment, I am uh, I don't believe it really happened because at, to your point. 
it makes almost no sense in the context of everything else that came. Yes. And I'm open to, because I've only seen the film once. And so I wasn't tracking, I wasn't, I wasn't measuring every scene versus the context of a given scene. So uh, I'm open to the notion that, okay, there is some, there's some context clues around that scene that would indicate a dream sequence or whatever, which is sort of fine. But for the first watch, it did enough to convince me something's weird about mommy that it was jarring once it was finally like, no, there's really not, you know? Uh, yeah. So, so, um, so anyway, all that to say, I was ready to kind of love everything. I was just on a first viewing. I had convinced myself of a thing that wasn't true based on sure. what I felt like the film gave me. And so without knowing or not knowing that that was a feint, it felt a little intentionally deceptive. Of a, right. Of a Which, and and I I'm totally with you on that and and that's part of why I view it as like like you just described in your in your way to try to contextualize you as the viewer seeing that scene it gave you evidence to believe something's wrong with mommy and so that's why I position and again uh, want to overemphasize I could be wrong on this interpretation but that's why I position it as something that they either imagine or they observe in part and complete in their own imagination. Like maybe they observe her walking out into the wood for whatever reason and and then imagine what takes place there. But that's why I feel like it's something going on with the boys or an extension of, I keep saying the boys, it's only Elias. But uh, why I feel like that's maybe something going on with Elias is because it does engender some distrust. It does engender some... right some fear of like, this is, this is not normal for her mother to be acting this way. Um, which is totally, which is totally fine. And the mood, there is precedent in the film baked into the film for him having these disturbing dream states. Like he does when he friggin' cuts her open and roaches cross. But in the first viewing, and it's even possible that that scene, the, the wood scene with Mama going crazy, is part of that dream, but I don't remember it being couched in that frame. You know what I mean? Right. And no, so I, yeah, I get it. I that's get it. why I was unready for the clarity the film tries to issue of it is the boy with an imaginary brother torturing mother like that. Yeah. That, oh, my gosh. You, you kind of had to go there for the film's ending to be effective for you whatsoever, but... I was still looking back being like, but what about that scene? Mm-hmm. Um, no, I understand. I understand. And that's the thing is that, that the reason I call, and like you you aptly said, it's a, it's baked into the film, but the reason I call, the, the moment that the tide turns and it's no longer her being the threat, but it is them being the threat, once that flips in the last half hour of the film, uh, then it throws all that you've seen before into sure. suspicion. And that's something that, like, then you get into all of the stuff that the boys have been participating in, or the boy has been participating in, and the ways in which you, in the first hour, would see this as child trying to ascertain or defend themselves against a right. potentially malevolent figure. And then suddenly it's like, oh, God, no, like, this <laughs> this is the child's sort of uh, twisted sense of reality that is now leading to literally deadly and horrific consequences like yeah. the what eventually happens to this mother character is some of just as a like thinking about the experience some of the most 
traumatic Grizzly. and yeah, it's upsetting. Awful. It's 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 terrible, and uh, and it is. I mean, it's it's really gruesome. It's a very uh, to call it extreme is uh, to imply some gratuitousness that I think is unfair. It's not gratuitous, but it is very extreme in what happens in the last half hour of the film. It is a proper it's, horror film. It's well, very disturbing. It, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, kind of piggybacking on that, because none of the pre- none of the preceding film is fantastical, again, except right. for the possibility of that, that dream state, Mommy in the Force scene, when the grisly stuff starts happening, it feels all the more visceral because you're like, oh, my God. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. R- some real quick uh, likes, dislikes, and then fully into the the Goodnight Mommy sequence. Um, uh, <laughs> it's so heartbreaking when you think the boys are still the boys and they're still under threat when the priest takes them back to her. Oh, that's, a, I know. that's so rough. Yeah. But I love, I love, there's two filmmaking notes right there. Uh, one is, I love the tiny moment when she's on the stoop opening up to the priest and they just yeah. turn the por- they turn the yeah. porch light off. <laughs> I just <laughs> I love for for as dark as this movie gets, there's some really great comedic elements in it. That's, sure. That's sure. one of them. The Red Cross scene is the other one. But so the Red Cross scene the, is funny. The porch light gets turned off on her while she's trying to open up to this priest. But then right after that, I love the framing. I don't know if you remember this. Uh, in the background, she's at the door locking the door, and in the foreground is the stairs going up mm-hmm. to their second floor, and the stairs are slats. It's not like a complete staircase. Um, oh, sure. And the way sure. it's framed, the slat of one of the stairs completely breaks at her shoulders, thus cutting her head off, um, mm-hmm. which is this really mm-hmm. just great bit of camera framing, which is really, yeah. really oh, great. Yeah, oh, sure. But yeah, I love yeah, the, I love the Red Cross scene, like just them trying to busy themselves counting their money and consulting the donor <laughs> list was just really hysterical to me. Yeah, and then it's and what's great about that scene is that is humorous and properly humorous. And then they offer the money and it's like, should we take this from a child? Like, right. Yeah, right. Sure. I mean, I guess we can. We can take it from a child. So what is happening in that moment is they've got at that point in the film They've got mommy tied up upstairs. Yeah. And they've got her uh like her mouth is taped shut at that point. And the Red Cross people are downstairs. Mommy is trying desperately to, like, wiggle the tape off of her mouth so that she can scream for help. Meanwhile, the boys are trying to get the Red Cross people to leave. That part's humorous, um, but then bleeds into one of the more disturbing elements of the things. Because she, as the Red... In a terrible bit of timing, as the Red Cross people have just left, door's been shut, she gets the tape off of her mouth and begins to scream for help. Uh, the the boys in response to that super glue her oh mouth shut, gosh. which is just oh. like, uh, it, oh. yeah, it's, it's really awful. Well, it's and really really awful. I hesitate to use this word, but the payoff for even that is just yeah. one oh. of one of the. Ooh, I'm, I'm yeah getting nauseous just thinking about it. <laughs> listeners can't, listeners can't see how much we're like visibly squirming with each other. Like it's just like like yeah, we're visibly squirming with each other. Um, <laughs> it was right, a weird so statement just, you just let's made. Just, let's just, right, right, right. You made you, you made it weird. Um, so <laughs> good night, mommy. Okay. <laughs> good night, lackey. Um, let's uh, let's let's die full force like a like a roach down the throat to these uh-huh. these scares. Um, one, yes, the first image of Mama when you have no clue, like I did. I had not lo- I had not seen any behind the scenes footage. I had not seen promotional stills. I did not see a trailer. So. 
all I know is the title and these little boys. And look, aren't they so sweet? And oh my God, there's, <laughs> yeah. there is like Jack Nicholson Joker bandaged up after he gets some ace chemicals in the face. Um, <laughs> yeah, mommy looks scary. She, she does. does, she does. That and then the, you know, just what is, come on, Reed, like you, come on, man. I feel like you're like trolling me with some of the choices you make. <laughs> like you're like, you know what? Nathan <laughs> really hates roaches. Let's make this the year of the cockroach trauma movie. You know, you've got Creep Show. Oh there was another one. What was the other one? There's a third out there. Baba Duck. Oh, Baba Duck. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and then Baba Duck. Baba Duck. Come on. Well, what's so funny is I actually called him Chekhov's Roach because you first see that big <laughs> cockroach, uh, which I could be wrong. But I did just take my kid to a nature museum about two months ago where they talked about oh. Madagascar hissing cockroaches. I think that's what these are because oh, you think, hear. I think you're right. You yeah. hear the noises and it's it's. Um, <laughs> yeah, it is. Oh god, can't even talk about it. Um, but you see that first one in the bathroom, and I was like, "That's not good. That's coming back." Little did I know. <laughs> little did I know. Not just. That, oh, by the way, there's like a terrarium full of these giant, nasty cockroaches, <laughs> yes. which yes. just ain't good night, mommy. And then, <laughs> not only that, but oh, yeah, by the way, what? Reed, come on. Like, yeah. come yeah. on. That might be one of the most horrifying things. Like, the fact that it's playing in my head as I'm talking about it, just, 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 blah. Yeah. When, yeah, it's awful. Oh, it's by awful. the way, listener, if you're not going to watch this movie, Creepy kids who you don't know are creepy and one's not even there, like to taunt and torture mommy in the middle of the night, put one of these big ass roaches on her, which, oh, by the way, crawls up on her face. Oh, by the yeah. way, then proceeds in her mouth. What? Yeah, crawls in her oh, mouth. my yeah. good uh, night, uh, uh, mommy. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> Pardon well, me. You- that shit ain't right. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Well, and then, like, in that weird fantastical Ooh. dream sequence, they cut up oh. their belly and, like, out they pour. Well, that oh one, that one you at least know. It's so crazy. It's not real. Like, yeah, I, don't, I don't know that that mouth cockroach scene ain't real. Like, oh, my God. I, they position that as pretty weird, pretty real. Did you yeah, know disgusting. that the trailer edits that? Do you, do you remember the scene in the movie where she eats the cracker, which is really random and weird? Oh, yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. So oh, yeah. so they come in while she's sleeping. They then leave. She opens her eyes and just chomps Crunches down a on cracker. a thing. You learn yeah. she's got a cracker in her bed. The trailer edits this in such a way that Mm-mm. the Mm-mm. yes, that the no. uh they show the cockroach in the mouth scene, they edit in another shot, they edit back to the same frame, but it's her crunching on a thing. So no. they make you think Yes. No. That's how the trailer edit I just put it out there on Insta this morning. I saw it. It's nasty. Ain't Good right. night, mom. That ain't right. No, that, that ain't right. right. No, on, that ain't right. Man. Come on, man. So those are those are some really disturbing scares. We've uh, we've already you know alluded to some of the tremendously because like to call them scares, it is so vastly disturbing. What hap- like what they do to mommy? Like it watch starts- this during the day, please. You're, you're, yeah. you're not going to do yourself a favor if you watch this at night. No, true, true that. Um, and. It's it's interesting because the 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 film the one shot that like when I stopped watching the movie when I had when I had finished the film the first time through if there was an image that stayed that with me 
the uh, the overhead shot. The oh, maybe not. Uh, Go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, no, that's no, okay. But the 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 one image that stayed with me, and it's it's only maybe a second and a half. I mean, it's very very few frames. But when they've set the house ablaze, oh, and and she's she's screaming because at the moment that they've set the house ablaze, they have glued her to the floor, and. Then they, it, it again, you'd have to see the film to see the context where they, but they have glued her to the floor. Then they have set the house on fire. At this point, you know that it is just Elias. But then, like, she's screaming, and her screams get more and more panic. And for, like, a second and a half, it shows you that she is full bore, like, ablaze. Emily And writhing. And, yeah, yeah. And screeching and it just that is a second and a half i don't know if i will ever be able to get out of my head that is Ugh. a i mean it is man it is really alarming christian shouldn't be watching these movies <laughs> <laughs> what have i been doing with my hobby life these last three years this like, ain't right fear of god's been fun y'all like <laughs> good night uh, well I th- yeah yeah i thought you were gonna reference although i i don't disagree with your take on the fire scene but uh, what I was referring to as the overhead shot is the 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 framed image over the bed of her having completely soiled herself um, oh, and, and tied up. Upsetting. That's just pitiful yeah, and awful. That's upsetting. Um, yeah. And then uh, the as I mentioned, the payoff of the super glue scene when they oh when they like snip her super glue back open and miss oh. and. Like a like a thirteen year old boy shaving for the first time, clip her lip and it just gushes. Oh my gosh! Yeah, it's awful. <laughs> oh my gosh, it's terrible. And of course, she's screaming the whole time. It's oh like, golly, Reed. man, it's it's pretty awful. Let's yeah, end it's really, this really quick. Good night, fear of God. Oh my! Gosh. I've seen the new Suspiria, and the 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 gross in Good Night, Mommy rivals and or exceeds that. I, oh, I would agree. I would agree. And part of that is because I care much more about what the, like, it's also handled more realistically. Which oh, yeah, is just, yeah, yeah. That's I know. Just I'm terrible. just that's making terrible. it kind of no, funny because the end of Suspiria is nightmarish, but go ahead. It really is. Um, so, uh, pivoting into some theme, and again, with with respect to the film, but with apologies to listeners that we do have a kind of a hard stopping point, um, what this film speaks to for me and why I find it so compelling, although I'm remiss to know in this moment if I would be able to nail down what I think the film is trying to say. But again, in fairness, maybe the film's not trying to say anything specifically so much as as we do in our conversations. It's exploring, not explaining. What I really profoundly, what stuck out to me is it is really a film about the devastating impact of a loss of trust. That's what I wrote down Mm. is the the when you because here you have what we find out later in the backstory is that uh, this car accident has taken place something has taken place some tragic accident that resulted in the loss of lucas lucas is dead lucas is gone it also resulted in a separation of mommy and daddy and mommy and daddy are no longer together daddy is not in the film at all like we don't even get his name he never appears there's nothing except as uh, memory of a thing that was and so you have all of this, but what builds within Elias's mind and what you think at the time is Elias's and Lucas's mind is this distrust of mommy. And what really stuck out to me in emotional and powerful ways is 
you have so let's, let's talk about in the real for a moment. You have in the real this traumatic accident has taken place that has consequences of such irrevocable and irreversible magnitude that you know Lucas is gone. Lucas is gone, but Elias for reasons, you know, the film does not fully unpack but can be intuited, cannot cope with Lucas's absence. So he envisions him. He sees I... him. And this, for me, having seen it a second time, and this is what I'm grasping with right now, is the distrust of their mother that develops through the course of the early parts of the film could be seen as an explosion of a fundamental distrust of, like, this accident has taken place. How could mommy let this accident happen? Like, how could, you know, how, they're supposed to protect us. They're supposed to be safe. I don't think the film tells us, like, the parameters of the accident, like who was driving, what, who was at fault, what was the situation. Um, I don't think it really spells all of that out for us. But a traumatic event occurs, and what it does is it begins to plant these seeds of distrust in the safety of the world and distrust in the, the safety of what you see around you. And that distrust, if given you know continued affirmation and reinforcement can lead to you making monsters of loved ones, making monsters of trusted space in places where you should be helping each other cope, helping each other deal, helping each other uh, heal through this thing that has happened. Instead, it engenders and finds its nexus in Elias begging her to prove you're my mommy. And, oh God! And, and 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 now you know now this distrust has so saturated your perspective that uh, that that you the person before you you no longer recognize them you no longer see them as who you saw them before but it's through the lens at least partially of how the trauma has affected you how the trauma has affected them how the trauma has changed forever the world around you. And Mommy, in one of her um, sort of begging and pleading for them to let her go and not hurt her anymore, promises to pretend Lucas is there. You know, right. she tries it for you know it, with a statement, kind of tries to reach him and be like, Lucas has died. But then she's, I'll, put, I'll set out two bowls again at breakfast. You know, I'll, right, I'll speak right, right. to Lucas. You know, like she's, she's saying she's she'll play in. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And she's saying she'll she'll play into that, but again, you know, being hard pressed to to nail down a specific thesis statement for the film, that theme of the the impact of a loss of trust, you know, either through a traumatic occurrence or through a shift in behavior or through something that has just changed about the dynamic of the relationship, that um, you know, it it has devastating consequences and i think as a final note and then I'd, lo I'd love to hear your sort of response to this that as a final note like it is so haunting that the final image we see of them is so the film the, the house goes up the house goes up in a blaze and uh mommy definitely with it we can logically intuit based on the scene i'm about to describe that elias also dies in the fire because then what we see is after the fire has consumed everything, then Elias and Lucas walk out through this little field behind their house and reconnect with a mommy that they 
openly embrace, have no fear of anymore. And the mommy, like the, one of the I'm final, gonna, I'm going to, um, sure. I'm, I'm going to challenge that interpretation actually. Oh, uh, because, oh, okay. Sure. Because I think, I think to take your, your already very uh, resonant thematic note and, and explode it, you know, it, it, one of the things that is very clear in the proceedings of this film is just how utterly isolated these people are. And, you know, you undergo trauma and then isolation and not just them as a family unit isolated, but, you know, the film at every turn props up how solitary their existence is. And yes, the unit, I don't even mean just the boy, but the the whole family unit. And, you know, you, you, where I'm going with this ultimately is is partly a recommend notion too once that we usually get to, but I would say this is a worthwhile view for horror fans, but it's it's so joyless uh, intentionally. Mm-hmm. I think joylessness yeah. is baked yeah. into it um, because it's about the exploration of what trauma in isolation can breed. And right, what I was right. going to say about challenging your interpretation of that final scene, I don't think it's safe to assume that Elias dies in the fire. I think it's safe to assume it's possible that Elias survives the fire and his already figment of Lucas gets joined by a new figment that he perceives as his real mommy out in the woods. Oh, Thus, your, is- your, your isolation is is driven through the roof by the fact that now this actual physical boy is alone in the woods and will die that way. Like, oh, man. Good, good night, mommy. Um, oh you know, but, but I mean, I think that's because of the tone of the film, which mm, is mm-hmm, stark mm-hmm. and Spartan and antiseptic and just, uh, I don't know if antiseptic is the word I'm looking for, but it's very, there's nothing there. You know, it is, sure, it is these, sure. it is these two characters ultimately wrestling with their mistrust of each other. Um, right, it is his right. desperation to 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 get over the the trauma and psychological loss he's experienced it is her desperation to rejoin the li- land of the living as it were by being able to rejoin society because she's bandaged and can't kind of engage in that way because correct me if i'm wrong but they established that she's like this newscaster like her her profession was as yeah she was a public figure a public figure yeah. um mm-hmm. you know so so like she's isolated she's alone she's trying to make do with what remains of this life they had um, and yeah, we we catch yeah. them after the worst of the physical trauma has taken place, and we're now just watching the long tail of the psychological trauma bear right. itself out. And you know, I mean, <clears throat> excuse me, a two pat answer is just to say, be sure people are in your life. But I mean, my God, you know, like be sure you have people in your life. <laughs> Golly. Yeah, yeah. Like um, she doesn't. She only briefly, you know, skirts the the subject with that priest as he drops off the boys. But yeah, we don't see her reach out to anyone. Right. Um. We don't. And, well, and, and likewise, yeah. we don't see anyone reach out to her. You know. Exactly. No, it's true. It's true, and that's a fair point. Um. Whether the isolation is self-imposed or just conditional of the nature of of their prior existence. Right. Um. It is. Uh, yeah. And and. I think to the yeah I agree it would be perhaps it, it's important to note yes keep people in your life it would be uh, and I don't think you were doing this but I think it would be a bit too reductive to say like that you know that that's the antidote of the film but I feel like something that we should really uh, for for myself maybe I'll just I'll just speak for me 
something that the film, since viewing this second time, has really made me interrogate in my own heart is the way I view individuals in my life once I no longer trust them. And ways that I think that's a powerful takeaway. Yeah. Yeah. The ways that I would perhaps interrogate how the the loss of trust has now perhaps positioned me to have a very unrealistic, skewed view of what happened and of the proper way to heal and cope with it. And, uh, and, that, and, and obviously, uh, you know, the scriptures call us as believers out and challenges us to be ambassadors of reconciliation, which is a phrase that uh, is tremendously powerful for me. It's a landmark phrase from the scriptures for my, for my personal uh, perspective. And, you know, that the way we make monsters of people we no longer trust is just antithetical to being ambassadors of reconciliation. Uh, does this mean that you, you know, go break bread all the time with people who have tremendously hurt you? No, I'm not saying that. You know, that's that's not uh, that's not the appropriate takeaway either. I think it, it, it leaving it at perhaps a, for myself, perhaps just the question of let me take a moment and interrogate the way I perceive and categorize and contextualize people I no longer trust and well, the, and the place they hold in my life. It's in, I think everything you're saying is eminently valuable. And I would add to it that may be helpful to what you're describing. Um, I think it's important to recognize in the film, though, that and and this does happen, however, less grisly in the real. Um, this does happen in our relationships that what's so difficult to to use your phrase, make monsters of the people we don't we've lost trust in. Um, mm. What's what's hard about that? You're not saying this, but is if someone wanted to to sort of interrogate that a little bit, it's that that's a willful thing. Both of these uh, people are not willfully engaging what they're doing. You know, mommy is is it's self preservation. It's it's how do yeah. I get out of bed in the morning? How do I feed this child right. who is clearly traumatized mm. that I don't I'm not equipped to deal with because I'm dealing with my own crap. And from yeah. Elias's yeah. standpoint, he's a child and is not mentally and psychologically equipped to to wrestle down the trauma he's you know kind of experience and so sure you know that that sure. sort of making monsters of each other becomes inherent to the scenario itself it is not willful and so i think it's valuable to recognize and maybe supplement what you're saying with simply the notion that when when trust is lost in a deeply necessary relationship in this case parent to child but but even mm. it doesn't have to even be that intimate but but just a relationship that is deeply meaningful and valuable you do have to find something you can trust elsewhere in order to mm, to mm. pardon the the loftiness of the language in order to save yourself in order to to yeah, ensure yeah. your own health and and well-being and the ability to then if not retrust the former relationship because sometimes that is irrevocably broken to at least recognize it and to to compartmentalize it in an appropriate fashion to right. to to recontextualize it in a way that isn't perceived purely as willful hurt that broke it you know what i mean yeah, um, of course. So no, of I think course. I think those are some very powerful takeaways and what is a very powerful film. Oh my god. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So um 
I think I think we should we should leave it there, um, both for our time's sake and the listeners. So let's uh, let's quickly pivot over to the fog meter, if that's okay. Yeah. Um, so fog meter is our very specific metric of fear and God, how we rate these films. Um, on the fear measurement of Good Night, Mommy, I will lead the charge. Good night, Mommy. Uh, this is a traumatic and and devastating film. Uh, I, part of me wants to give it a nine, but I'm going to land it an eight for the fear measurement. Well, speak, speaking of breaking trust, like I got so embedded in these boys belching with each other and these brothers. And I was like, Oh <laughs> man, that reminds me of me and my brother when we were little. Like, Oh my God, what are these people doing to each other? Oh man. Yeah, it is. By the end of this film, it is harrowing. No doubt. Um, I, I will happily sidle up to your eight and join you there. But like you I am tempted for more. It's that intense. Uh, but I think yeah, eight is really a fair, is. a fair place to land. Sure. What do you? What would you give it for the God meter? Uh, previous to our conversation, maybe kind of low, but I do think the seeds are there. Um, if we are, uh, you know, like cockroaches in the night, willing to swallow the the what it gives us, um, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> the, I think if the film even marginally intends what we just took out of it. It's, it's got a good bit of stuff on its mind. It's hard to know if the film actually intends that, or if it's just kind of the, the, the bones are there to build on. But I would say, I would say, you know, giving deference to what might be there and recognizing what we took away from it. I'd give it a six easy. Okay. Yeah. I am going to pivot slightly higher and give it a seven Um, for some of the same qualifiers and some of the same defenses uh, that, that you just gave it. I feel like it's uh, it's there. It's appropriate. And that means that we give good night mommy on the fog meter, a 7.25, which is a pretty substantive rating for the fog meters measurement. Uh, Yeah. I'm giving quarter points. Don't say something. So, uh, so (laughs) 7.25, but, Perhaps a more complicated question than it should be. Nathan Rouse, would you recommend Good Night, Mommy? Um, I think for horror fans, most certainly. I think for our listeners, most definitely. Um, unlike a lot of the things we cover, I'm looking at you, Phantasm, there's nothing fantastical about this film. And so the horror, <laughs> the horror is actually far more visceral and grisly and difficult. Um, so it is yeah, it is by no means a casual watch. Um, so I, I, would, yes. I would recommend it for a definitely a viewing. Um, it's not because of what I do think is a pretty joyless sort of at, intentionally. So joyless sort of presentation, it would be difficult for me to recommend beyond a, for, uh, uh, and you know, a single viewing. Yeah. I, I I'm kind of right there with you. I think, uh, horror fans who can stomach some grislier and heavier material should see this film, not even just like, yes, I'd recommend it. If, if you are somebody whose palate allows that for that, you should see this film. It's very affecting. It's very strong. Um, and if you and like you said, for our listeners, if you have even the remotest sort of approach to the types of conversations we have, I think you'll get a lot out of it. So. Um, so, yeah, but it, but as you said, it is not a casual viewing. <laughs> it is really not. Um, OK, so uh, Nathan, thank Great. you for You're enjoying welcome. this. So um, I, I enjoyed that conversation tremendously. Next week. Going to be continuing on with speaking in tongues. We are going to, as I already unfortunately spoiled some elements of it, we're going to be diving into episodes three and four of season two of Netflix's Netflix's Dark. But the main film we're going to be covering next week is a film from 1988. It is a Dutch film, uh, a Dutch slash French film called 
The Vanishing. Its proper title, Spurlus. And uh, it is a, uh, not to tilt my hand, it's a fantastic film. Seek this film out. Not to tilt his hand, but he will. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Not to tilt my hand, but here's everything. Um, so, <laughs> so yes, uh, the vanishing. Uh, we're covering it next week. This is not, and I want to be very specific about this. We are not covering the Jeff Bridges, Kiefer Sutherland remake from the '90s. This is the original 1988 uh, foreign language film. So, seek that out, Nathan. Thank you so much for having this conversation with me. I know Good Night, Mommy is a heavy film, but I really enjoyed this call. You're welcome, brother, and good night, Foggers. Good night. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, but not the end of the conversation. And you can continue the conversation in a variety of ways. You can follow us on Twitter, at The Fear of God. You can like and follow us on Facebook, or join the Facebook Fear of God discussion group. You can follow us on Instagram at Fear of God Podcast, or go to morethanonelesson.com to leave a comment on this post or any of the other official episode posts. Email us at fearofgodpodcast at gmail.com. Our theme music was composed by Lee Wright and Reed Lackey, and our podcast art was crafted by Jacob Hunt of jacobhuntcomics.com. Merchandise for the show can now be found at tpublic.com. Just search for The Fear of God Podcast, all one word. And last but not least, if you listen to us through iTunes, we would greatly appreciate a rating or a review. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week.